0: Welcome to The ConFab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of The Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Fred Barnes is here to talk about the short-lived Steve Bannon era in the Donald Trump saga. And then we're going to talk with Ethan Epstein about the need for Republicans to engage, not hinder, African-American voters. All that coming up on The ConFab. Now we get the Confab rolling with Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Fred, welcome to the Confab.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you. This week in the magazine, you are writing about a new campaign book mm-hmm. uh, by Joshua Green of Bloomberg Businessweek, and uh, his new book is called Devil's Bargain, mm-hmm. Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Before we get to talking about this book per se, though— Yes. I'd like to follow the 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 track of your argument in the in the piece, which is you start by talking about campaign books in Mm. general and what makes a good campaign book. So, what Mm. makes a good campaign book?
1: Well, the first thing is it has to be memorable, and how do and and how does it become memorable? It does not fixate on the chronology of the campaign. I mean, you want this happened then that that happened, happened, and then and then there was the Iowa uh, there were (laughs) Iowa caucuses, and gee, the New Hampshire primary, and all. I mean that. That, uh, as Larry Sabato, the University of Virginia, who I talked to about this, uh, says, he said, that's what newspapers are for. That's what you can go <laughs> online. You can find all that stuff. You don't need a book for that. Right. You need a book to say something different, to take on another issue, to look at the campaign in a different way and, and tell you things you didn't know before. You know, the greatest book, uh, the most influential book was The Making of a President. Uh, In 1960 by Theodore White. And before that, I mean, uh, this is actually a little bit before my time, but I went back and read the book later, uh, The Making of a President. It changed the way reporting on politics and campaigns is done in America. Because uh, before that, rather than reporting, uh, the campaign coverage was usually repeating. I mean there would be great coverage of all the speeches <laughs> but you wouldn't right. learn uh, much beyond
0: that and uh, and this was uh, all the behind the scenes stuff that How did how did Teddy White get behind the scenes? How did he get that access?
1: Well uh, well uh they knew he was on their side uh, the <laughs> Kennedy uh, people and I'm glad they knew that and I'm glad they uh he was allowed to write this book because it really is a great book. Read it today and it's a great book but so Political that's a classic. Report, what makes
0: a classic as opposed to just a good campaign book?
1: Because it was the first of its kind. It's not just it, it it it's not just writing about the chronology. It's writing about what went on behind the scenes with JFK and the people working for him. And that has that changed political reporting because this is what practically all campaign reporting is about now. It's based on, on Teddy White's novel, which is hugely uh, uh, influential. And if you go back and read it, you'll find it's still the best one using that model. It's a great book.
0: And it's changed not only campaign uh, books mm-hmm. but basic campaign coverage. Everything <laughs> now is like the behind-the-scenes yeah, take as Absolutely. opposed to the official speech.
1: Absolutely. A wonderful book.
0: Where does the book on, uh, on Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, Devil's Bargain, where does it fit in your, current, in your hierarchy mm. of uh, good to classic well, campaign books? Well,
1: I'll mention a couple of
0: other books. You know, I,
1: I love the book by Jeff Greenfield that came out after the 1980 campaign where everybody was talking about Reagan this and Reagan that and Jimmy Carter doing this and so on. And what Jeff Greenfield said was important were the conservative issues that Reagan harped on. Uh, and, and it's the last time you, you've heard in a, in in a reporting on a presidential campaign that it was the issues that mattered. You know, the uh, anyway, it was it was really a great book. And uh, anyway, so to get around to uh, a Devil's Bargain and the bargain be between, I, I guess, between Bannon and Trump. Uh, and uh, and the idea was I mean, this is a book basically not about Trump. It's about the most interesting guy an odd guy to come into politics at a high level uh, in a number of years, and that's Steve Bannon. Uh, It was a short stay for him but uh, because he's since been bounced out of the White House, but a fascinating uh, individual who had uh, considerable influence on Trump uh, and understood uh, that Trump was good at this, but Bannon was even better figuring out what uh, what would appeal to the public uh, with a candidate like Trump uh, and help him win. And it was very conservative populist
0: issues. And did you learn in this book how Bannon appealed first to Trump? How how did that relationship begin?
1: Well, he, he met him and he worked for him uh, when he wasn't a part of the campaign, remember, uh, Bannon was the head of Breitbart news. Uh, and he would, for one thing, he'd attack, uh, Trump's enemies, uh, and, and other candidates, Always uh, a way to ingratiate yourself. He, yeah. No, but then he got involved and he offered advice. And, and one of his really breakthrough pieces of advice was, you know, don't, wor- don't worry so much about Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, the first two states that have Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary, the southern states are what really matters. And before, and and he more than anybody else, worked to get who he thought was the most influential southern senator. And that was Jeff Sessions, who we know now is is Trump's attorney general. And with Sessions there, Trump just, remember he lost the Iowa caucuses, won New Hampshire, and then swept the south. And you wouldn't say that the uh, nomination was wrapped up then, but it was pretty darn close. Uh, they, they really... Smart strategic uh, piece of advice that, that he heard from, uh, uh, that Trump heard <coughs> uh, from Bannon. And then remember, there's another reason he got the job. Trump had had two chiefs of staff or, or chief strategists, and they were terrible. They, they were horrible. And Trump's campaign in August, now this is August, remember, uh, before the election in November, uh, his, tra- his campaign was flatlining, wasn't getting anywhere. And he brought in Bannon, and it, it rejuvenated it. Bannon gets a lot of credit. Josh Green, the author of Devil's Bargain, says Trump wouldn't have won without him. Um, You know, in my review, I didn't take a position on that, but he darn well helped uh, Trump uh, in a major way win the election. and, and And what was in there for Bannon, he's now one of the most famous people in politics in America and the world.
0: And yet, he's not that well known. One of the Mm -hmm. things you talk about in the the review of Devil's Bargain Mm -hmm. is that the book has a lot of interesting background on Bannon. This is a guy who has taken a very weird, really, Mm -hmm. intellectual path to get to the views he has. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's really uh, self-taught.
1: You know, he went to Virginia Tech, and uh, I think he took an engineering course. It's a you know, heavily in engineering school. Uh, and then he was in the Navy and he worked at Goldman Sachs and did stuff in Hollywood and Breitbart News. We know all that. At the same time, he he, he conducted personally a study of the world's religions, religions over 10 years. And he discovered philosophers, obscure philosophers you and I have have never heard of Eric, uh, the, the
0: the French and French occultist uh, philosopher. Yeah, right?
1: I know, and and yeah, that uh, who, who had a a huge influence on him, but uh, particularly in this way, they were deeply traditional and thought that. Uh, modern secularism uh was destroying uh civilization uh and to return and we needed to re- we needed to get rid of that for one thing all the secularism and uh and return traditionally to the way uh western civilization was 100 or 200 or 300 years earlier or maybe even farther back and and uh uh <laughs> you can just imagine steve bannon reading these books and and really uh, imbibing uh, of the lessons. And they were part of his uh, uh, populism was was based on this very traditional.
0: So his populism was based on it. But those weren't the arguments for populism yeah. that he made to Donald Trump.
1: No, no. I mean, he he uh, what he did is. Uh, he, he was a step beyond Trump on the issues that they already agreed on. Uh, one was immigration, and, and Bannon uh, just wanted to eliminate uh, legal and, uh, and obviously illegal immigration, uh, and, and most of uh, legal immigration. Uh, there was trade. He certainly agreed with Trump that uh, uh, America had been fleeced in trade treaties with other countries, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and he liked Trump's blunt style. Uh, Bannon is a very blunt person. He really, and and one of the interesting things is what Josh Green says in the book that there are ways that that Bannon actually changed Trump. Uh, I mean, the way he talks, the way he described issues, uh, he he would pick up from Bannon or from reading Breitbart News, which Bannon was the editor of.
0: This book saying that that Bannon was crucial to Trump's mm-hmm. victory and mm-hmm. an essential part of the yeah. Trump team um, seems to have been in some part. Uh, responsible for Bannon getting the heave ho. Oh yeah, I, you um, get the sense that Trump doesn't like other people getting this in the spotlight.
1: That's part of it, but it's also that uh, uh, he was at odds with uh, uh, the way uh, uh, the way Trump handled issues after he became president. We all know presidents uh, promise things when they're candidates and when they get in, they find, gee, you know, that's not going to work in this world that I'm, I'm dealing with now that I'm uh, sitting in the Oval Office. And, and Trump has changed on a lot of those noisily, at least inside the White House and somewhat outside the White House bannon was opposing that he opposed the decision not to get out of nafta opposed the decision to send a few more troops a few thousand more troops to afghanistan uh he was the guy that convinced trump i think largely that uh nato was uh uh the completely uh, uh decadent and and we need to get rid of it or, or get the u.s out and uh and so on um, so
0: how did he get outmaneuvered by other players in the white house
1: well reality does Have an impact. (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, uh, the world, uh, Western Europe, all over Western Europe, uh, the uh, the countries or at least their leaders uh, just went uh, crazy when when Trump, even after he was elected, seems uh, seemed to be um, um, lukewarm on NATO. And, of course, NATO, the North American Treaty Organization, which was designed—when was it enacted? I think the late 40s. Uh, It was designed to impede the Russians, the Soviets, uh, from attacking Western Europe. And and you could argue, as Trump did— uh, or, or at least as Bannon did, that, well, I, we don't need to worry about that anymore. But uh, it was such a great alliance that uh, uh, th- it was a good idea to keep it. And other countries in Eastern Europe, after uh, the, the uh, Soviet Union collapsed, joined, uh, it was one of the great unifying forces in the world. And and Trump had to back down because there was just so much pressure on him to uh, hold on to NATO and, to, and then to hold on to uh, NAFTA uh, and to hold on to uh, any number of other things that he has changed his mind on. China's a good example. The uh, In his departure from the White House, you'll remember, Eric, what, what Bannon said. He wanted to focus laser-like on China and the way they had screwed the American economy and taken jobs, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, that was— Trump believed a little of that, but he he obviously didn't want to make that uh, priority number one. Especially
0: Uh, when he has North Korea to deal with. He has
1: North Korea, and and when he met with the Chinese premier uh, or president,
0: he liked him. Bannon's on the outs now, Mm -hmm. back to Breitbart. Is he going to be going after Trump or Mm -hmm. trying to support Trump, and how much power does he have at this point?
1: He has a lot because he's famous. And and what he says and writes and uh, will be reported. He is a famous guy now, particularly in Washington uh, and with the media. So uh, the average American still may not know who he is, but uh, but they're going to hear from him. Uh, and uh, you, you really can't get away from that. There's a way to do it though, um, to make his criticism not aimed at Trump, but aimed at the advisors who have twisted trump on this on one issue after another they've they've uh, uh, convinced him somehow wrongly
0: that uh, this is a very traditionalist point of view for for oh. Bannon. it's like you know once upon a time you wouldn't you wouldn't criticize the king directly yeah. Yeah. but you you could go after his advisors indeed and that's what he's doing fred barnes executive editor of the weekly standard thanks for joining us on the confab you're welcome Now we welcome to the CONFAB Mr. Ethan Epstein, associate editor of The Weekly Standard. Ethan, how are you doing?
2: I'm okay. How are you?
0: Good, thanks. So you are writing an editorial in The Weekly Standard this week in which you're saying that the left has a point that Republicans have been doing their best to suppress African-American voter turnout.
2: Well, uh, I I don't know if I want to make that universal statement because it hasn't happened everywhere, but I think there are some clear instances where state-level Republicans have done certain things that look an awfully lot like they were intended to reduce the turnout of the most stalwart Democratic group, which is the African-American community. Yes. And yet you say this is not the case with voter I.D. laws. No, I mean, I think um, voter I.D. laws, which are actually usually held up and castigated as as a sort of. Uh, crypto-racist policy uh, are are fine. I think they're a completely reasonable regulation against uh, voter fraud. It's kind of absurd, in fact, that I have this experience here in Washington, D.C. when I go and vote and I give my name and they just, you know, wave me on through. Uh, I'm like, I'm actually demanding, can I please show you my ID? And they say, no, no, no. So, I mean, I think that's kind of an absurd state of affairs and voter ID is completely uh, understandable. But what I also think is that when states impose voter ID laws... They should make it so they're simple to obtain one. And what is kind of noxious is that certain states, right after imposing voter ID laws, have actually made it harder for certain communities to obtain them. And that is pretty uh, shady behavior, in my opinion.
0: So a place like Alabama... It says its issue has been just trying to save money
2: on where it's going to have DMV locations. Sure. So here's the thing. Like, there's always a semi-reasonable-sounding explanation for any one of these measures. But when you add them up, it does look like there's kind of a pattern. So Alabama is a good example. It's a state that, you know, has chronic fiscal problems, et cetera. So they've closed DMVs. However, the closure of the DMVs coincided, A, with the voter ID law. And more DMVs were closed in areas that are heavily African-American versus heavily white areas. Maybe not racist in, in intent, but it has the effect of making it harder for black folks to get IDs, which they need to vote now. So Democrats always make the effort to s- set up
0: voting rules and regulations in ways that favor Democratic candidates. Sure. Why, why shouldn't Republicans be trying to set up voting rules and regulations that favor republican candidates
2: well i i mean two things for one i don't think it's ever a good argument to say those guys are terrible so why can't we be terrible too like we should aspire to a higher plane here um of course that's i'm still a youthful idealist at heart i suppose (laughs) uh the other thing is and um is that you're of course right that Democrats do certain things to make it easier for their groups to vote. However, those are actually usually about um, expanding the easiness with which uh, a person can vote, so it's all about like getting more early voting days, uh, mail that ballots or something. It's a little different when certain Republicans, rather than uh, just expand the ways that their voters can vote, but to actually sort of throw the sand in the gears of Democratic uh, uh, Democratic voters, if you see what I'm saying. like It's more about Uh, restricting their opponents voting as opposed to promoting their guys voting, which I think is different. So you make the argument in your editorial, though, that that Republicans trying to
0: restrict Democratic voters are not being racist in intent, but rather being partisan in intent.
2: Yeah. I mean, for one, I'm like not unlike (laughs) unlike most of my colleagues in the media. I'm not adept at like looking in the hearts of my opponents or my allies and saying whether you're a racist, you're not a racist. I suspect that the reason we've seen these measures is partisan, as you point. I mean, it's not a coincidence that uh, African-Americans tend to vote Democratic about, you know, 90 percent of the time. And therefore, it's those measures seem to be about restricting their right to vote. The problem is it has historical resonance uh, given, you know, the history of slavery and Jim Crow and everything. So it has it it can look racially discriminatory in in effect, even if that wasn't the intent. So you argue that what Republicans need to be doing
0: is altering the calculus in a different way, which is to make African-American voters less reliably Democratic rather than making voting more difficult for Democratic voters who happen to be African-American.
2: It, it, totally. I mean, the the sort of underlying fact here is that the Republicans have essentially given up on winning um, black African-American voters. Uh, Maybe that made sense in the Obama era, at least on the presidential level, Uh, but maybe not. Who knows? Um, And I think that uh, (laughs) rather than sort of stomp our feet and say, well, we're not going to win them. Let's do what we can to reduce their turnout. It would be a sign of a more healthy political party and a more healthy political system if we were if both parties were competing for everybody's vote.
0: How realistic is that, though, when, you know, Democratic politicians have made as their reflexive argument forever that Republicans are racist, they hate you, don't even imagine listening to anything they have to say, um, You know what opportunity, what strategy do Republicans have for reaching out to African-American voters?
2: Well, the Democrats have gone all in on a super... Um they basically with with some exceptions they basically rejected the notion of the melting pot so their entire political message both their media allies and the party is let's divide everyone into their little groups and basically put pit people against each other i mean that was the failure of hillary clinton's campaign she, she amassed every group except the largest group which is the white man who she basically told to pound sand I think there's still a space for a universalist message in American politics. I think most Americans still think of themselves as Americans as opposed to some measure of, you know, some subgroup they belong to. So it's not necessarily that Republicans or Democrats should, you know, go to a group and pander to them explicitly. It's that they should have a message that, um, you know, appeals to Americans of, of any stripe. That, that to me is better as, a, as an electoral strategy, but also, you know, it would actually really be better for the country at this point, too. Something good for the country. I know. Again, I'm, I'm a hopeless idealist, apparently. <laughs> Ethan Epstein, associate editor and hopeless
0: idealist. Thanks for joining us on The Confab. Thank you. That's it for The Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to The Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.